Good evening. Is this on? I guess it doesn't matter. You can hear me. Uh, my name is. It's on. Oh, my name is Karen Kennerly. I'm the director of Penn, and um, uh, Susan Sontag, our president, is, alas, uh, traveling right now and can't be here. So, I'd like to welcome you all uh, to an evening of uh, readings from Korean literature and discussion about the current situation in South Korea both writers, journalists, and editors. Um, the uh, uh, pen has worked for at least 15 years on behalf of Korean writers. And Edward Albee, who's going to properly introduce the evening, would tell you more about that, since he's been very active in it. Um, I'd like to introduce our participants. Edward Albee, <laughs> you'll see in a moment, if you can't see him. Here are readings will be by Susan Sarandon, Max Apple, and Madeline Langell. This, this is Susan Sarandon, Madeline Langell, Max Apple, sitting next to her. And um, a discussion about the current situation for writers and editors and journalists in Korea. We have Mr. Kim Uchong, who is right here. And by Mr. Lee Yong-Hui, who is on the far end of the table. Um, I thank you very much, and uh, but before though, I'd like to, um, on the back of your program, you'll see the credits of the pen members who made this evening possible. Uh, they are Carol Asher, Maureen Howard, Michael Stevens, and with the assistance of Edward Baker, Nicole Wong, and David McCann. I'd also like to thank Andrea Masters of the pen staff coordinator, one of the coordinators of Freedom to Write, for all the hard work she put into the evening. Thank you very much. Let me move the microphone so I'm not standing directly in front of Susan Sarandon. It's not fun, it is not a proper thing to do. Pen exists in so many different guises and so many different forms depending upon the country you're in. I remember being in the Soviet Union for the first time in 1963 when membership or admitted membership in Penn for a Soviet writer uh, was nothing that one was proud of. In Prague, in a number of occasions that I've been there, the writers who belonged to Penn were not the writers that one read, that one cared about. The Freedom to Write Committee of Penn in the United States has turned Penn from a useful organ into an essential part of our culture. Since 1974, 1975, the Freedom to Write Committee of Penn in in, a, in alignment with other organizations, Amnesty International and other organizations, has kept, kept battering at the walls of silence, kept battering at the walls which imprison physically or morally or spiritually far too many people. We all know that in totalitarian societies or as the Reagan administration is more fond of calling them authoritarian societies, we know that the writer is one of the most feared 
and despised of people. This came home to me about 10 years ago when I was in South Korea. I was ostensibly there because um, there was a touring company of six of my one-act plays, um, which uh, had uh, completed a year's tour of um, American universities and was now doing, doing the Far East and Korea and the Philippines and Hong Kong. And several of my actors vanished into mainland China, uh, one of whom I don't think ever returned, but, but nonetheless. I knew that I was going to South Korea. I knew that there were abuses, injustices going on in that country, that a number of writers were imprisoned. And it occurred to me that since I was going to be there on some kind of quasi-official capacity, maybe I could be some help. Maybe I could do something. And so I asked the Freedom to Write Committee of Penn if they would prepare or we would prepare a statement to present to, to President Park of South Korea condemning the imprisonment, the imprisonment of Kim Chi-ha and a number of other writers. And uh, I also persuaded the Council of the Dramatists Guild to prepare a statement that I could also take and, and give to uh, President I was also able, while I was in, um, in South Korea, to meet through the generous auspices of a Methodist missionary whose name, alas, I can no longer remember, to meet with uh, Kim Dae-jung, the uh, political leader who was at that time under house arrest. I uh, had a long meeting with him and his splendid wife and was able to bring out some documents which he wanted President Carter uh, to have a look at. But I requested a meeting with the President of South Korea to present these um, uh, documents. And of course the President was, was, was very, very busy and far too busy to see me. Perhaps he was too busy um, taking care of the civil rights of, of, of some of his citizens, I'm not sure but I was, was received by the vice president, whose name I can't remember either, of South Korea at the time. And I presented my um, petitions from the Freedom to Write Committee of Penn and from the Dramatist Guild, and, and I chimed in with a few words of my own that I didn't think this was the way for a responsible society to be, to be treating its uh, finest people. And the vice president of South Korea explained to me that these poets who were imprisoned, Kim Chi-ha and others, and I remember there were some women writers who were imprisoned at the same time, along with Kim Chi-ha. He explained to me it was essential for these writers to be imprisoned because if they were freed, the South Korean government would collapse. Uh, fortunately, I was under, uh, not under diplomatic immunity, but some sort of quasi-official capacity in South Korea, so I felt free to say pretty much whatever I wanted to. And I remember myself saying, well, Mr. Vice President, this, 
This is really extraordinary information. One of two things must be possible in spite of the soldiers I see on every corner in the street, the tanks um, uh, I see parading uh, uh, down the streets. One of two things is, is, is either quite clear. Either poets are far stronger and far more powerful than I had ever believed they were, or you have a government that, if it can be blown over by a word, certainly deserves to fall. Uh, he bowed, and he presented me with a present, a uh, model of a Korean temple um, gilded in, in, in a plastic case. It was about this size. I happened to notice that as one of his assistants went to get me my present, I noticed in a closet that there were seven or eight different sizes. <laughs> I did not, I must tell you, receive one of the larger <laughs> one of the larger presents. Nonetheless, I was I was happy to be able to contribute to to the extent that I could to the dismay of the existing government of South Korea at the time. Um, I believe some things are better, not better enough anywhere for the Freedom to Write Committee of Penn to disband its efforts. There are abuses and, and injustices still far, far too prevalent around the world. But uh, we are here for a, an extraordinary evening of hearing about the condition in South Korea, of hearing probably for the first time for many of us, uh, Korean work. Um, that should be enough of an introduction, I would think. I'm going to go sit in the back. Have fun. I'm Max Apple. I'm going to read some of Kim Chi Ha's work, starting with a long poem, The Story of a Sound. Can everyone hear? Okay, if you can't hear in the back, just uh, raise your hand. I'll notice you. I'll ask your forgiveness, too, in advance. I'm a writer of prose. I haven't read poetry aloud since I was in sixth grade. And at that time, I, as I recall, I was speaking in the voice of a fish. <laughs> there are some cuts in this poem <clears throat> because it's quite long but I hope it's a narrative and I hope you'll be able to follow it in spite of the cuts for some time now in the heart of Seoul they have heard the strangest sound some people quake like aspen leaves and sweat freezing streams at this sound a strange business, and stranger still. These are guys with money, the real big load operators. Kung, there, that sound, Kung. A canister of tear gas bursting? No. Kung, the war starting? An A-bomb exploding? A Hirohito fart? Nixon's cough? No. Kung, 
the Red Army salute guns greeting big noses in Tiananmen Square? No. Then what? Kung. There, do you hear it? Kung. Does anyone know the story where the sound of Kung came from? Kung, Kung. Listen, you people, and you shall hear the story of a sound. It wasn't in Russia, China, or America either, but here in Korea, the eastern part of Seoul where the dust swarms up in Chongyanji, and beyond it lie the coal-black fluids of Chongnang Brook. Jammed together down its banks, the squatter shacks perch in bunches wherever they fit, rattling this way, trembling that, in the slightest breeze blowing by. Way in the back of the darkest corner of the most ramshackle shack lived Ando, up from the country to find his fortune. Ando worked like an ox, but was timid as a mouse, simple as a sheep, the harmless sort who doesn't need laws to live right. But some strange twist of fate, some lousy inheritance from a previous life, made whatever he tried go bad. It might start well, but it wouldn't come out. What looked good for a while just wouldn't turn out. Get married? How could he? He couldn't find a girlfriend. Buy a house? Not a chance. He couldn't get the rent for a whole room. He couldn't find money for food, and if it looked like he might get a job, well, from this day to that day to the very next day, they kept putting him off till it went up in smoke. No backer, no go here, no school tie, nothing doing, no deposit, no return. No soup, no dessert. Without any money and no one to help, there wasn't a deal he could start. The shakedown artists shook him. The rake-off operators raked him till not a thing was left. He could yell all he pleased. It was no use. Or fling himself down in a rage, no help. He could struggle, kick, open his eyes wide and glare all around or just close them, resigned to his fate. It made no difference. It was all the same and no good. He began to think of hanging himself, but he couldn't find a rafter. Gas wouldn't do. The windows were full of holes. He couldn't slip away on a mixture of poison and wine. There was no money for a cup and nothing else to use. So no way. He had no way. No way to rest. No way to put his feet down on the ground and just stand. Just once to have the guts to stand up firm on his two feet would have brought down a flood of accusations for crimes never heard of before, never seen, never imagined. Pay up in advance, settle your taxes, your fines, your whatever is left, your security. I'd rather jump in a cesspool and drown. You're not allowed to die. Rice money, shit money, water money, fire money, la-di-da. Room money, clothes money, shoes money, medicine money, money for pickles, money for soy sauce, money for coal, dum-dee-dee-dum. Add to this, add to this money, money for congratulations, and add to this money, money for condolences, and on top of this, for contributions, on top of this, for the local officers, on top of which, the price of going back and forth, on top of which, the money lender. On top of whom, way, way on top, this and that. Add it up and add it up until every which way from bottom to top, Ando was wrapped up tight. Ah, what a dog's life this is. 
No sooner were the words out of his mouth than clankety-clank heavy handcuffs were snapped on his wrists and Ando was dragged straight off to court. Bang, bang, bang. State the charge. The crime, Your Honor, of standing on the ground with his own two feet and spitting out groundless rumors. The crime of insufficient veneration for the fatherland, denigration of the mother tongue, comparing the fatherland to an animal, the crime of making it possible for other countries to conceive of our fatherland as an animal, thereby and in conjunction with disturbing the environment for capital investment, the crime of promoting social disorder and instigating unrest, the crime of agitating the people, the crimes of pessimism, being weary of life, otherworldliness, providing comfort to the enemy, harboring anti-system thoughts and advocating same, the crime of supporting by empathetic means the establishment of an anti-state organization or network or group, the crime of promoting the clarification of personal self-esteem, fostering in turn the development of spiritual and ideological self-reliance which inevitably nurtures the consciousness leading to anti-state riots. In addition to which, the defendant, for violating the provisions of the special anti-social manipulation law, is hereby found guilty of all crimes as charged. Therefore, in accordance with the law, it is the solemn judgment of this court that immediately upon adjournment, one head be removed from the defendant to prevent further thinking or pronouncing of such groundless rumors, two feet be cut off to forestall the recurrence of inflammatory standing on the ground and to prevent the breeding of future seditious types, such as the defendant, that one reproductive organ and two testicles be removed. And finally and furthermore, whereas there is the clear and present danger that defendant may resist, his two hands are to be bound behind his back. He is to be wrapped in one water-soaked leather straitjacket, and the opening of his throat is to be jammed shut with a hard, thick, and long-lasting voice-blocking tool, after which he is to be put into solitary confinement for 500 years. No, this can't be. It can't. How can it be? Starving in rags, I worked nearly to death, beaten and yelled at. I didn't say a word. No chance to rest, to sleep, even to lie down. Then why has this happened? What awful crime has brought this unbearable punishment? Oh, geese flying so high, you know what is inside me? Tell me, where the millet stalks reach their long shadows through the heavy sunlight by the newly built road, is my mother still standing, waiting for me, weeping silently in clothes worn far past their season, does her gaze reach out time and again toward soul? Dear mother, I shall return home. Return even though I die, though my dead body be torn in a thousand, ten thousand pieces. I shall return through this wall over the next. Even as a spirit, I shall pierce and vault those red brick walls. I shall return, mother, even in death I shall return. Ando would have cried out this song, but what tears, what voice did he have? Without tears or voice deep within, each night he sang out his crimson blood-red no, no, no. 
Roll then, roll your body, beating with it, kung, again and yet again. He slammed into the wall, kung, kung, kung. There were those who couldn't sleep at all when they heard that sound rising up. People with money, the ones who could really blow the wind right by. They sent out their strict orders to have that fellow executed, and yet, kung. It's a strange business how that sound seems to drive some people mad. Kung, kung. You can hear it now, night and day, never ceasing. There are some who call it the work of a ghost. Others will tell you it is Ando somewhere still living and ceaselessly hurling himself against the walls. They say this stealthily, whispering from ear to ear, while a strange light flashes from their eyes. Now I'll read you two brief poems by Kim Chihan. First one is Blue Clothes. Blue clothes would be fine if I were a bird, water, the wind, clothes that shut my meager naked body in, such blue for the sea, a dream, a moment of the sea, forced into my heart, the blood flows painful, red tag, square and stiff, to be free of you I might gladly die, gladly become scattered ash. Through the black night yearning for dawn, if only the tears falling from expectant eyes might reflect just once the lucence of the morning glory and brighten with sun's illumination. If only to stand for a moment in sunlight, pouring down from blue skies that in every dream pierce the black clouds, open gladly, imprisoned in these blue clothes. I would gladly die if that were to be real this moment and not hidden till the very end. Hunger. Starving, I plucked and ate grass, weeds, drank from a spring, and lay down with a stone pillow. I chewed on roots, dirt, earth apple, dark red toadstools, every last morsel chewed up, and still I hungered. The tough, sizzling meat of hundreds, thousands of pigs all at once dipped in the salt and snap, chew it up. Come on, come on, let's go, dragging huge, empty, starving, and maddened guts to soul. Go and eat whatever there is, whatever trash turns up. Come on. Fish bones, bean skins, beef ribs, dogs have gnawed and dropped. Blowfish, houses, streets, cars, every last piece of trash, whatever its sex. Fat ones, snap, snap, snap. Human flesh, too, and even money, snap.
First, I heard from American parents to say something in this occasion, but on this occasion, but I didn't know what the, really the exactly the occasion was. I heard uh, from pen of an international long distance call, so I could really quite uh, grasp what was going on. Just uh, I uh, knew that uh, I was supposed to say something very briefly about the situation of the writer in Korea. So I prepared uh, this piece of writing on the plane. So I just uh, read it through. To begin with, uh, I am very glad to be able to say that the political conditions surrounding the writer in Korea has generally improved a great deal uh, in recent months. In that uh, uh, there has been no recent arrest of any writer or that we feel much freer to say whatever we would like to say. Though there's always the possibility that uh, what we have is not really freedom of expression, but absence of a salient case testing the boundary of whatever freedom we may have. For we have been accustomed to the idea that one never knows where one stands until one tested the points of danger. Now these points of danger are unclear. The last presidential election somehow has covered up the whole field of Korean life in a dense fog, making visibility very low all around. Dangerous minds have been cleared of the whole field, or it may be merely that they have become invisible. Certainly many promises have been made for the democratization of the country with no less equal vehemence by the president-elect than by the opposition candidates, and they indeed occur the slackening of the controls here and there. Yet there remain in the minds of many a profound sense of falsity in the entire situation. Many issues have been diffused, but merely fuses are removed the minds are there and the fuses can be easily reinstalled. The last election, the majority voted for the opposition, but we are going to have a president the majority did not vote for by the quirk of the election rules. Would he carry out the democratic measures which is, while it's unlikelihood exactly decided the majority vote in the opposite direction? The only thing we can say at this point is that uh, pressure of the majority view is there, clearly recorded in the votes, as a countervailing force against whatever non-democratic direction the new government may take. I said that the political atmosphere for the writer has become much lighter, and he can feel definitely much less of a covert or overt lines of coercive confinement, even if, as I said, one cannot be sure of anything until the boundary test is carried out. It must be said, however, that there are several hundreds in prison for political reasons even now. They included writers or various people related to, to the job of writing, journalists, publishers, or writers as such. We must say, pronouncing the word writer, that it is difficult to pinpoint a writer as a writer. The long-lasting democratic movement in Korea has implicated so many diverse groups of intellectuals in the struggle that it is difficult to draw clear demarcation lines at any point in the continuum of people with intellectual or writerly connections. How long and what and in what kinds of media should one have been writing before he definitely becomes a writer? 
confining ourselves, however, to those who can be called writers on account of the weight of their published works and the breadth of public recognition. We may say that, they, uh, that there is one published and recognized writer in prison now. His name is Kim Namju. His case already has been internationally acknowledged as the International Pen Congress at Hamburg made a plea for his release in 1986. And there have been efforts in Korea to secure his release, the most recent being the petition that was being circulated when I was coming away just a couple of weeks ago. There are obstacles, however, because the change charge against him arose not strictly in connection with the activity of writing itself. This could be said from the government's point of view, though the point requires a more careful legal scrutiny than I'm, prepared, I'm competent to give. Kim Namju is now serving a 15-year prison term, and he has already served eight years out of this 15. He is alleged to have been involved in the organization of a revolutionary action group. The legal side of the case apart, however, uh, where is the sharp dividing line between acceptable dissent, acceptable to whom, and sedition between revolutionary activity and the revolutionary writing, between overt meaning and the possible practical consequences of the meaning. Kim Namju is a revolutionary poet, to be sure. He speaks of the unbearable misery of the poor and the oppressed. He says that this misery can be cast away only by the overthrow of what perpetuates this misery. This revolutionary credo, if we, we call it that, was always, de always there in his poetry, but it is all the more forcefully and persuasively expressed in the poetry written in prison, where we feel the weight of his personal experience, experience of the oppression as embodied in his prison life. And where in his uh, poetry we feel his determination and the refusal to succumb to the pain of resisting that oppression, which we cannot help but respect and admire. Kim Namju has become, through his prison experience, a better poet, more forceful and more uncompromising in his understanding of the complex dialectic of man's involvement in the collective fate of his society. He has indeed become the best revolutionary poet of his generation. There may be different valuations put on his political philosophy, so there's no question about the force of his poetry. But the ultimate ground of our appeal in his case is the tragic toils of fate many of us in Korea have been <coughs> called in as the country as a whole has been shaken out of the accustomed ways of its past to transform itself into a modern nation. The harsh lessons we we learned in the process have had a revolutionary intensity. There was no choice in this. Once again, the change was harsh and revolutionary. The question was only that of what kind of harshness and what kind of revolution we wanted to choose. The, the choice here differed according to individuals and the groups. In face of the ineluctability of the change and the choice, tolerance forgiveness and reconciliation must be the only ultimate ground for our choice if we, are, if we are to preserve humanity in the condition of inhuman or human 
much to human strife and the suffering that has been going on in Korea. Thank you. pre-20th century, pre-20th century poets. What is a girl to do? If I say I told you so, or with him I should have known, what good is all that now? If I told him to stay, he'd stay. But I sent him off, and I miss him. Ah, this bewitches me. Long night. Let me stay and break the long night in two, roll it up and store it in a persimmon chest. When love returns, take this night out again, unroll it an inch at a time to make evening last much longer. If I had been then, how they praised my face, but that was then and this is now, and if I had been then like I am today, there would be no praise at all. This sorrow gnarls and tangles me like a skin of knotted thread, and if I try to unravel it, I am defeated. This endless thread so defeats me. Breaking the branch. Love, I break. I break this mountain willow, to you I send this branch. Plant it near the window where you sleep. Buds open in night rain, remember me. Dumpling House. The old Mongol shopkeeper grabbed my wrist in the dumpling house. Little dolls on the shelf, hold your tongues, for we made it, and I made love to him in that gloomy bed. In Samjong Temple, the head monk grabbed me as I prayed to the Buddha on my sore knees. Little monk's not a word of this to anyone, for we went to it and made love in his sorry bed. The dragon of the well pulled my soft hand while I drew a pot of water from the well. Pictures have ears. Please hush this up. With that dragon, I made love in his gloomy bed. In the wine shop, the owner reached for my hand. Little bowls for wine, not a word of this outside, for we made it in his bed, and there we made it. I slept with the shopkeeper in his dreary bed. Get ready for a long one. Virtuous women. from the song of a faithful wife. What was my crime? I have not stolen government grain. Why was I beaten so fiercely? I am not a murderer. Why am I put in the kange and the stocks? I have not broken the laws. Why have I been bound hand and foot? I have not committed adultery. What is this punishment for? I will take the waters of the rivers for ink and the blue sky for my paper and protest my innocence a petition to the heavenly king. 
My heart burns with longing for my husband. My sighs are a wind that fans those flames. I shall die with my love unrequited. The chrysanthemum stands alone in the wind in holy faithfulness. The green pine amid the snow has kept faith for a thousand years. The green pine is just as I am. My husband is a gold chrysanthemum. My sad thoughts and the tears I shed soak my sighs. I will use my sighs as the wind. My tears will turn to rain. The wind will drive the rain before it, blown and splashed on my beloved's window to wake him. Stars of the herd boy and the weaving maid, when they met on the seventh night, though the Milky Way divides them, yet they never fail to meet. What waters divide me from the place where my beloved is? I never hear anything from him. Rather than live in longing, I would die and forget it all. Better this body should die and be a cuckoo in the empty hills when the moon shines on the pear blossom at night to sing in my husband's ears or become a mandarin duck on the river calling in search of its mate. I long to see the sight, the light of love in my husband's eyes. Shall I become a butterfly in spring gathering fragrance on my wings, glorying in the sunshine and settling on his clothes? I will be the bright moon in the sky when night comes. I will rise and shed my bright beams on my beloved's face. I will draw blood from my veins and paint a portrait of my Lord, hang it on a scroll beside my door and see it when I go out and in. Because I am chaste and faithful, I have been treated thus cruelly. Who will come to rescue me? Will my husband now in Seoul come here as an officer? Here I am now close to dying. Will he come and save my life? The summer clouds flock round the peaks. Do the high hills bar his way? If the peaks of the diamond mountains could be flattened, would he come? If the golden cockerel painted on the screen flaps his wings and crows at dawn, will my beloved come? Alas, alas, the pity of it. short ones. <laughs> you need not spread that straw mat. Can I not sit on fallen leaves? Nor light that pine wood torch. The moon is up that sank last night. Don't argue, boy. The wine may be sour and served with weeds, but pour it. Beloved, you're smooth as a watermelon, but don't use honeydew words to me. Your words come thick as aubergine, but they are crooked as gherkins. Give up your hollow talk, empty as candied gourds in autumn. And three very short political songs. Pine tree, Rising beside the road, what is it makes you stand there? Relax for a little while and stand down into the ditch. Every rope-girded peasant that carries an axe 
will want to cut you down. Did I hear those boats have gone, that late were bobbing in the waves? As soon as the clouds gathered, were they forced to disappear? All of you whose boats are leaky, heed the warning and take care. Huge beams and roof tree timbers are rejected and thrown away. While the house is falling down, they argue with one another. Carpenters, when will you stop running around with your ink cups and rules? Songs of loyalty. Could my heart but be removed and assume the moon's bright shape to be hung there bright and shining in the vast expanse of heaven. I could go where my dear Lord is and pour my light upon him. Snow has fallen on the pine woods and every bough has blossomed. I should like to pluck a branch and send it to where my Lord is. After he has looked at it, what matter if the snow flowers melt? Milky rain mist on the green hills. Surely you won't deceive me. Rain cape of sedge and horsehair hat. Surely you too won't deceive me. Two days ago, I put off my silken clothes. Now I've nothing that can be stained. Moral songs. <laughs> it's called the Song of Five Friends. If you ask how many friends have I, water and rocks, pine and bamboo, the moon rising on the east hill, that also makes me happy. Now I ask, beyond these five friends, what need is there for any more? The clouds' color is good, they say, but often they grow leaden. The breeze's voice is clear, they say, but too often it is stilled. And I say that the waters alone are always good and flowing. Why do flowers blossom and just as quickly fade? Why does the grass grow green while it yellows and withers away? Can it be that only the rocks are quite immune from all this change? On warm days the flowers bloom, on cold days the leaves fall. Yet pine, how is it that you are untouched by frost and snow? I am sure that it must be because your roots reach to the nine springs. This one is not a true tree, neither is it a grass. Who made it grow up so straight, and why is it so clean inside? I like it clean and straight, and for always being green. The moon floating on high, giving light to all the world. Could any other light shine so in the dark night? What you see, you do not say. Can I say you are my friend?
The Disappointing Journey, 1652. Am I awake? Am I asleep? I ascend to the city of white jade. The jade emperor himself welcomes me. Many envy my presence before him. Forget them, my only joys are the five lakes, the smoky moon. I dream in a broken sleep in the palace of twelve pavilions. The jade emperor smiles at me, but so many scold my intent. When can I ask then, plead for the billions of souls on this earth? When heaven is torn to rags, what art can stitch it together? When the jade pavilion falls, what art can raise it up? I cannot appeal to the jade emperor. I leave without speaking. Up to the 20th century poets, and uh, this is a poem called Azalea, which will first be read in Korean. And having heard that in Korean, I think you can get a little idea of how terribly difficult it is to make a translation. So much of it is nuance, so much of it is not actually language itself. So here are two translations of the poem that we have just heard. When you go away because you can't stand me, I'll let you go gently, without a word. I'll gather an armful of them, pouring them on your path. Gently step on them. Oh, step lightly on the flowers, on the flowers laid out for you and go. When you go away, because you can't stand me, I won't shed a tear even though it kills me. And the second translation. You're sick and tired of me. When you go, I'll bid you goodbye without saying a word. I'll gather azaleas on Yak Mountain the burning azaleas of Yongbyon, and strew them in your path. Tread gently, please, step by step, softly, on the flowers of dedication. You're sick and tired of me. When you leave, I'll not weep, though I die. A nameless woman. I wish to be a nameless woman way out on a small hillside with gourd vines on the roof of my cottage, pumpkins and cucumbers in a hemp garden, the moon invited into my yard over a fence made of roses, and my arms full of stars. 
the owl hooting dark will not make me lonely. In a village where the train never stops, eating millet cakes soaked in a brass basin, talking with a close friend until late at night about the secrets of the fox-haunted mountains while a shaggy dog barks at the moon, I shall be happier than a queen. Mm. Roses. An ornate silver knife held in a woman's hand, fluttering. At sleeves length, roses open to love's tune. Delicate skirt lines, lips moist with fruit juice. The sun smiles with eyes drunken with fragrance. The afternoon sun pierced with rose thorns bursts into full smile. Hard life of Confucius. When a flower blossoms atop the fruit, you jump rope and play. I sought the emanation of a phenomenon, but found this hard as planning a campaign. Noodles, macaroni in Italian, is it easier to eat because of my revolt? Friends, I'll now look steadily at the physio physiologies of matter and matter, their number and limit, their stupidity and lucidity, and then I'll die. A folding screen. A screen cuts me off from everything, turning your back on the world like a dull person drunk with death, indifferent to everything. On your death-like surface is a dragon and the sunset. Sorrow is what you must sever, you say, to fashion a flying waterfall and a lonely island on a height higher than fiction. Planted in a most difficult place, standing before me, you block out death with death. While I look at the screen, the moon behind my back pours down its light on the seal of an old painter. Words. The root of a tree sank deeper toward the winter. Now my body is no longer mine, nor are my heartbeat, my cough, my chill, nor this house, my wife, my sons, my mother. Today I work and worry again as before. I do a day's work, earn money and quarrel, but my life is a life already consigned, my order and order of death. The whole world changed into the value of death. All distance shortens clownishly. All, vet, all questions vanish clownishly. The world won't give a damn about so many words I want to tell. Because of these wordless words, I can't deal with my wife, my sons, and my friends, so I keep my mouth sealed before this extreme difficulty, indulging in this terrible insincerity. These wordless words, sky's color, water's color, chance's color, chance's words, the death-piercing puny words, the words for death, the words serving death, the words that most abhor simple honesty, these almighty words, the words of the winter and of the spring. Now my words are no longer mine. Markets closing. 
We fools are pleased enough just seeing each other's faces, carving a melon by the barber shop, gulping macaulay at a wine stall. We all have old friends' faces. Talk of drought in the southwest, of deaths to the co-op, tapping time with our feet to the remedy vendor's guitar. Why do we always feel such longing for soul? Shall we find some place to play cards, tip our wallets, and head for the wine house? Gathering on the school grounds, we eat pieces of dried squid and we drink. Gradually, the long summer day ends. With a pair of rubber shoes or one salted fish, down the moon-bright road, the market limps to a close. Farmers dance. Gong sounded, curtain lowered. Makeshift stage, lights strung from a polonia. The viewers have left an empty playing field. Faces stained with powder. We drink, jammed into the wine shop by the school, suffocating, exhausted, lamentable life. The symbol in the lead, we start for the marketplace. Boys shouting, clinging to us, while young girls cling, giggling to the walls of an old oil dealer shop. The full moon shines as one fellow bellows like a bandit, another sneers like Sorum the outlaw. But what use is this commotion, kicking the heels crushed into a hole in the mountains? Better left to women, this farming that won't pay even for the fertilizer. Past the cow dealers, turning by the slaughterhouse comes the spell, and I lift one foot and blow the brass horn, shaking my head, twisting my shoulders. Country bus station. Once past the sixth block of Uchiro downtown comes the smells of my country home. Crossing the muddy yard of the bus station into the chill of the stoveless waiting room, an old man, ice dangling from his mustache, a neighbor from Sinni Village. Worried about the rice stack still ungathered in his field, he curses this cold and the windy snow. Oh, is that all you have for complaints, some woman sighs. Is that all you have for troubles, as adds the mistress of the wine shop at the crossing? The waiting room turns colder, and it grows more disordered. These people from home are somehow too much for me. Shall I just leave my seat quietly and take the bus back to Uchiro downtown? Return to the sixth block. I grow all the more cowardly. At the grave of Kim Soo Young. Trees roll up their blinds. A tedious soft autumn rain falls, falls and drenches the evening glow. I stand my umbrella against the gravestone, lay my wet mind for a while down on the ground. Nothing more to hold on to. I lean against the sound of rain, rubbing my back against the rain. Is there wind in the sound of rain? I see the grass trembling, the leaves of the trees tremble, the branches tremble, you tremble, clenching your teeth. Lastly, the grass trembles again. The uprooted does not tremble. 
Mountains around Seoul are all frozen, your mound pushed aside to a corner. The sky darkens, the last words relax one by one, fall like snowflakes, light on my head and shoulders, the back of my hands, my mind. I'd like to cast out the self, only cold flesh remaining, its cold whip. From the four quarters, snowflakes multiply, one, two, ten, another ten. They linger on the air. Then each lifts its head and turns to a white bird, a white clawed white bird. I see a strange light glimmering, horizon the span of a hand. Frozen feet trample on the rest. It's easy to erase that streak. Lonely children will erase it unaware. On this hill, the white birds turn off the light and fall as snowflakes. Three handfuls of earth, and the first one is called lullaby. The toy horse falls down and rolls over. Look, it wakes up. Unable to spit out those few words of pain. For a short while, a few sprinkles of rain and the barking of a dog in the night, my wife and children, who had disappeared through layered surfaces, return and writhe helplessly. I hope no one finds out. I close my eyes and hope they will disappear again. All right, go ahead and close your eyes and look up and see how the black clouds are clearing away in the middle of the sky. Some rain is still showering around the edges, and the earth on an island wet by showers yearns for you, waiting, assuming the mask of a devil. Look closely, for you too are earth. A bit embarrassed, a bit angered, the earth wants to be more intensely earth. Those few words I will drive away for you, far, far, even farther. See how the earth is dissolving into the earth and the warm rainwater. Now you don't see anything, do you? All right, now roll around and try opening your eyes. I open my eyes. The toy horse falls down and rolls over unable to spit out those few words of pain. Autumn in Seoul. Though I clench my teeth and endure, my face does not dissolve. How strange. I see nothing but heaps of dried straw. At night, I fall asleep with my eyes open while the wind keeps rounding up all the sleep, heaping it in one place. Autumn, 1972, or someday the next year, heaps of dried straw are piled up everywhere I go. A sparrow had died. It was hanging above the straw. Beside it, someone wearing a mask was silently flailing. Here and there, and in the place I was standing, masks with their spirits removed were glancing at one another as they moved about. 
counting the stars. Passage of seasons overhead, the sky is full of autumn. Without a single worry, I can almost count the stars. I cannot count one by one the stars etched in my heart, because dawn will break soon, because there's another night, because my youth is not yet spent. Memory, love, solitude, yearning, poetry, mother, mother, mother. I call each star by a lovely name, names of playmates who shared my desk, names of girls who have become mothers, names of my poor neighbors, a dove, puppy, rabbit, donkey, deer, and names of poets like Francis Yamas and Rainer Maria Rilke. They are all far away, like the dim stars above. Mother, you're far off in North Kando. Yearning for the unknown, I write my name on the hill drenched with starlight and cover it with earth. Insects that chirp night long seem to lament my humble name. When winter's over and spring comes to my star as the turf sprouts on the grave, grass will shoot up like pride on the hill where I buried my name. Self-Portrait. Father was a serf. He never came home, even late at night. The only things standing there were grandmother, withered and pale as leek root and one flowering date tree. Mother, unmooned, longed for green apricots, even one. By the oil lamp set in the dirt wall niche, I was mother's boy with black fingernails. With my large eyes and thick hair, I am said to take after my grandfather on my mother's side, who went off to sea, the story goes, sometime during the year of reforms and never returned. For 23 years, it is the wind that has raised the better part of me. Life has become more and more an embarrassment. Some read a convict in my eyes, some an idiot in my mouth, but I repent nothing. Mornings at dawn, the drops of blood mingled with the dew of poetry fallen on my brow. For I have come, tongue hanging out, panting through sun and shade like a sick dog. And the last two, snow days. Long, long ago, my love fell asleep, perhaps a thousand years before. Wherever she is sleeping, she sends me only the colors of her dreams. Pink, soft pink, azalea hues of her spring dreams. Red, deep red, the elm trees red in the murmuring hues of her summer dreams. And now that snow is falling, falling and piling deep, we are apart. Woman resting by my side, in the crescent moon that rises toward your finger's tip, again my love's dream shines. And the last one is called The Bride. Just as the bride in her red skirt and grass green blouse had loosened the hair by her ear and seated herself by the groom, 
In sudden haste, he started up to relieve himself outside, and in his urgency, caught the edge of his clothes on the door hinge. At this, the groom became even more agitated, thinking the bride in her passion, unable to bear it, the delay was holding him back. Aware of her, yet without turning to look back, he hastened away, leaving a torn piece of clothing on the hinge. Since then, some 40 or 50 years have passed. Happening to be near the house on some errand, he felt a brief pang of regret and opened the door to that room to see the bride, still with only the hair by her ear loosened, sitting with her green blouse and red skirt, just like that first night. Touched with sadness, he went and put his hand to her shoulder, at which she turned to ashes and crumbled away, crumbled into grass green and red ashes. Marvin Hagler, the boxer king. He doesn't trust the referee. He doesn't expect a victory by the referee's decree. Referees are corruptible. He is like an atheist, but he fights desperately with his naked body like a martyr. How nice it would be to win a neat, gentlemanly victory. But the ring often gets smeared with blood. It is like the French Revolution. Marvin Hagler is a world champion, but before the king of death, he's like a bull in a bull ring. The scar. I still carry around the scar from a dog bite. In the scar still lives the dog's snarling mouth and my father's face like an absolute monarch's. I have wounds that I have to heal myself, scars made by the brambles on my path the bloody path of history that I have been limping past. The wounds that each of us have to nurse with hushed groans settle into dark scars. The scar of the axe on a young tree will remain even on the day its foliage shades a town. Mothers and children in our ordinary neighborhood who dream of throttling demons at night, who dream of asphyxiation, they carry scars deep inside where no eyes can reach. They live in the double nightmare of nightly demons and busy days. I was asked to recount some of my experience during the last 10 or 15 years uh, under the two dictatorial regimes. Uh, to make it very brief, I'll do it in about 10 minutes, I think. <clears throat> um, I'll do it in two aspects. One. The first one is uh, how and through what process and what law uh, do usually the writers, uh, intellectuals, 
uh, <coughs> arrested, uh, were arrested, uh, examined, interrogated, and indicted, and imprisoned. Second respect is, in what kind of prison condition are they usually subject to? Human suffering, in other words. Well, To recount this kind of a personal <coughs> experience, whenever I was asked to, I feel in me something of uh, uh, reluctance because uh, it might uh, give us some feeling of telling uh, sacrifice or story of a martyr or if was a combat story, what American soldier usually tells to their friends after they are coming back from the combat, which usually <laughs> not existed, you know. <coughs> but uh, my case will be a, a typical uh, to many uh, writers. You are your friends in Korea, so I could recount my case. Uh, very dispassionately and uh, uh, disinterested way as possible. Because uh, usually the writers receive a uninvited visit of the guests in the middle of the night. <coughs> That's uh, very late in the night, uh, near midnight, or very early in the morning before dawn. Uh, sometimes they had been in the ambush and watching the writers or poets coming back home after a few glass of drink in the night, or uh, they um, uh, stay ambushed in the uh, district, in the house, around the house <coughs> to make sure he's or she's in the home, then uh, make a visit in the very early morning, six o'clock or five o'clock. <coughs> they never brings any uh, uh, writ of as a paper, legal paper to arrest. Right, uh, warrant. Uh, they just come, with, come in, step in, <coughs> knock at the door and step in, and just ask, demand to come along to the police station. But no use of protesting or asking to show present, uh, rep, uh, the present uh, any legal uh, uh, document. And usually they, uh, they are fair, uh, usually they come in three men in group. Two grabs both sides of the arms of the person and one uh, search the books, uh, writings, anything uh, they are interested in to find out, discover at the home. Then, uh, <coughs> uh, the law under which they charge 
the writers are mostly national security law or the anti-communist law. Now, two, that two laws are incorporated into one, but in substance, it remains exactly the same. The <clears throat> both national security law and anti-communist law in its uh, point one, article four, uh, uh, describes that <clears throat> to quote, to uh, possess, to <clears throat> disseminate, to write uh, <clears throat> any any uh, books, any <clears throat> uh, leaflets, or any any kind of printed materials, or uh, records, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> pictures, or in any form of. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, any form of uh, uh, <coughs> uh, uh, transmitting the uh, ideas or uh, articles, which is which could be construed as to encourage <coughs> and praise. <coughs> <I'm sorry. coughs> communism or communists or communist activities or groups regardless of the, the within the nation or outside of the nation that is the point one article four so uh, out of hundred volumes or a thousand volumes you have you are liable to have uh, some kind of material or book under some kind of uh, subject could be construed uh, to be f f in that uh, 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 description. Uh, no use of you are arguing in defense of yourself before uh, uh, prosecutor. Very good example is uh, that uh, with me, uh, out of 225 volumes I was confiscated, uh, they asked to uh, tell what is the content of the book, what kind of the na nature of the book, what is the author, and where did you buy it, how much it did you pay for, and when did you buy, uh, all kind of things. And <clears throat> in due course, the prosecutor brought up three volumes of Japanese translated volumes of Das Kapital by Marx. And he asked me, as usual, who is the uh, writer, and what is the nature of the content of the book, and so forth. And this prosecutor is the person who are exclusively for indicting, interrogating, indicting under that particular anti-communist law. And he asked me, who is the, who is the writer, Marx? What, what is the nature of book, Das Kapital? And so forth. So 
I was dumbfounded. I couldn't even feel to look his face uh, straight because I thought he is making a joke or he's trying to intrigue me um, by that kind of uh, in <coughs> uh, queer expression, you know. But I finally uh, come to conclusion that he is really, truly ignorant of those things. <laughs> so, so I said, well, very, uh, uh, I can't speak uh, uh, in normal uh, tone. So I uh, found, found, I say, uh, the, I can speak in a smooth way. I said, well, Mr. Prosecutor, uh, to <coughs> you to ask uh, what kind of book is this is something like that. You asking me what kind of book is Bible <laughs> is. Then he was staring at me. And then about the author, I said, that author is a German uh, philosopher, political scientist, and so forth in the 19th century. Then he was furious because I was meandering, not answering in straight forward way. Uh, he shouted at me. Well, so I said, well, that's, a, that's so, such a nature of book, and uh, that's uh, Marx is such a person. Then <clears throat> he seems to be uh, feeling something very uh, shameful uh, coming up in his heart. His, his face was so reddened and stood up abruptly and uh, ordered a two prison girls who were standing beside me throughout uh, hours and hours of uh, interrogation, ordered them to take these guys back to prison. And he left the room, closing the door, banged behind him. Well, in other words, the prosecutors and the police are so ignorant in a way. You just uh, have no uh, room to talk them over or to, to discuss or argue. Whatever they write down, that is the paper that's to be uh, transferred to ju before judge. And my case that the indictment, the letter of indictment at the first instance court, I counted it at the prison room cell, 6,484 6, letters. It was composed by 6,484 6, letters. After 11, 11 sessions of trial and the argument, with many numbers of uh, witness and uh, uh, nine uh, lawyer for my defense, nine lawyers. And after six months of trial, the letter of uh, judgment passed down by the judge was exactly composed Exact is a letter numbered 6,484 letters. In other words, <coughs> the judge 
in this kind of cases of uh, national security law or anti-communist law, judges have no authority or powers or, or anything of his own to uh, pass accordingly. You know. They have to make a copy of uh, indictment letters to show it as a letter of judgment. I was twice, I published under my name uh, seven volumes of book and uh, four volumes of them were banned uh, under anti-communist law. Uh, I was twice in, imprisoned once the longest one was at the <coughs> last period of Park Jong-hee and was released after two years after Park Jong-hee's assassination. Then under President Chun Doo-hwan regime in 1983, I was indicted and uh, indicted, but somehow I escaped the tiger's mouse only living two months and a half in the prison. And uh, I was, uh, as one of uh, 38 college university professors in 1976, to be fired because of the political reason, and spent four years as a uh, uh, jobless. And after Kwangju massacre, incident of Kwangju massacre in 1980, only three months after I was reinstated, restored back to the professorship after 44 years, I was again uh, indicted. Then also I was released after uh, two months from the underground cell of the KCIA. I was fired from the university as one of 86 professors who all were unfavorable to the government, of course. And then in a f four years later, in 19, July 1984, we all were uh, restored, reinstated. <clears throat> Such other uh, audio and hardships always had to bear in mind who write, say, speak something against or criticizing the government. Well, so much for uh, first aspect of the, my account. The second one is uh, the Korean prison for specifically for political prisoners, we are our classifications are in three classes. One is um, the ordinary ordinary prisoners, the murderer or burglar or rapist or, or such. Second is economic uh, crimes, those who having uh, wealth but misuse their money or things like that, check misuse of checks and bankruptcy and such. And third is political prisoners and prisoners under communist law. The worst treated is, of course, the political prisoner. The best 
created is the uh, economic criminals, and the, in between the ordinary uh, criminals. The, the specifically designed and built uh, cells in the prison for uh, political prisoners are such the shape and the size is four feet wide, nine feet long. Four feet wide and nine feet long. And that even nine feet long length of cell uh, include two feet square of uh, uh, washroom, in other words. To, to use very gentle and noble word of washroom. But in fact, it is just a, just a concrete slab in two feet square. Right in center of it, there is a hole. And that is a place where you have to uh, uh, satisfy your uh, nature's call with very good marksmanship. Uh, and and uh, in behind of the cell, there is a window, two, square, uh, two feet square. That's only place, only space you can look out and see the sky. And in front of your cell, there's a one feet square of an iron plate door, one, one uh, feet, uh, just about the size of head, but uh, smaller than the size of your both uh, shoulders. Uh, uh, the uh, aperture through which you are fed with food. And upon <coughs> upper part of the uh, steel per, uh, door, there's a, a iron bird uh, one feet square opening. That is where you can answer to the question of uh, God or such. So in other words, <coughs> the space in which you are subject to, say, two years, for two years, or five years, as in the case with uh, Kim Ji-ha, or seven years, as in the case with uh, the uh, Kim Nam-ju, that is the world that you are subject to. And uh, in mealtime, in mealtime, in summertime especially, uh, from June, July through August and September, well, maybe sometimes three times, four times, according to the locality where it is in, you are in. In the southern part of Korea, Korean Peninsula, it is hot, warmer, uh, summertime is longer, and northern part is slightly shorter, but doesn't make much difference, three months or four months. Uh, when you uh, start eating on the, uh, with the uh, meal, uh, the very rough, very bad uh, uh, bowls of uh, rice and soups on the floor, then inevitably and invariably uh, you meet the another horde of visitor, visitors who are crawling out of that uh, concrete Maggot, that's what you say, maggot, maggot, maggot. Horde of maggots are uh, crawling 
they they have smell of some food and they cook. The first one or two weeks of time, you just can't eat it. Seeing maggots crawling out and coming around your bowls of rice was. <coughs> but you have no way but to find out either to um, uh, bolden yourself to disregard it, or otherwise to somehow to uh, chase them back to the back into the hole, concrete hole. Uh, in a week or two of time after time of your uh, struggle with your accommodation to it and uh, your acclimation to it, to the condition, and you you become quite natural eating the food with uh, the maggots, hordes of maggots around, just uh, pushing them with a piece of papers, pushing them back around. And the political prisoners uh, are encircled, their cells usually, uh, the special ward for political prisoners are constructed to have 34 cells in one side and 37 uh, cells, uh, total 71. Why is three, three cells difference in one row? That is a space for uh, water or uh, the wash, washing and such a facility is there. And uh, you, you are allowed to have uh, physical exercise. Uh, if you are lucky or you have fought, struggled by hunger strike or by extreme, resorting to extreme means, for many months of struggle, you may be allowed to have a one hour in a day for uh, outdoor exercise. But within uh, double, double rows of uh, high walls, uh, entirely secluded and uh, uh, separated from ordinary or the wards for the ordinary 